0: Updates to Cohorting in Long-Term Care, a conversation with Pam Metter from the West Virginia Healthcare Association. So on today's episode, we're talking again with Pam Metter. We had the pleasure of speaking with Pam just a few weeks ago about today's topic, but there have been some recent updates, and she's back to give us some insight on what has changed. For those of you who might not be familiar with Pam, she is the Director of Regulatory Services with the West Virginia Healthcare Association. Uh, In her role there as Director of Regulatory Services, she works um, heavily on policy and survey review, as well as helping member facilities navigate challenges in the healthcare field. Pam is a registered nurse and has worked in long-term care for over 30 years, and prior to working with the Healthcare Association, she worked for more than 10 years as a project coordinator here at Quality Insights, where her work focused on quality improvement assistance to long-term care facilities. So welcome, Pam, and thank you for joining us again for joining us again to talk about cohorting amid the COVID-19 pandemic and how that has affected long-term care and skilled nursing facilities.
1: Thank you, Mitzi. It's always fantastic to come and visit with you guys.
0: <laughs> All right. Um, so we talked several weeks ago about the topic of healthcare cohorting amid the COVID-19 pandemic and how. Things have changed for long-term care and skilled nursing facilities as a result of that. And then, I think it was just a day or two later, um, or maybe even that very afternoon. It was, uh, it was that day. (laughs) The CDC issued updated guidance about that. Um, So before we dive into those updates, uh, I just wanted to give our listeners kind of a brief overview in case they didn't catch the last podcast on cohorting and long-term care and how um, some of the ways that that has changed with COVID. Um, And then we'll kind of take a deeper dive into some of the specific updates that the CDC issued earlier in February. So can you kind of give us an overview about what you talked about last time, Pam?
1: Sure, sure. uh, last time we talked about cohorting and the fact that in long-term care cohorting is nothing new. We are we are old hats at putting the same, People with the same infections together, or a history of the same infections, um, especially the multi-drug resistant infections such as your MRSA and your VERSA, and all of those other C diffs and all those other wonderful little acronyms that we use for infection control. Um, we're old hats at doing that. We know that you know folks that have these histories of these um, uh, infections can't go with in with people that have. And even if they don't have any infections, if they are immunocompromised, or if they have a portal of entry, such as a PEG tube or a catheter or a wound or anything like that, we know we can't cohort those types of of conditions together. Um, What COVID has done, it has really risen to the top of our cohorting priorities. Uh, we've had to get, we've had to section our facilities off to where we've had a positive, a COVID positive wing, where only folks with COVID, positive for COVID can be on that wing or in that section of the facility. Um, we are only permitted to uh uh, cohort folks that are positive with COVID and nothing, no other kind of, of infection uh, together unless they have the same exact infections. Um, we've had to have uh, staff that are um, cohorted also. We our nursing staff, we've had to have those put in the facilities' co- positive COVID wing. Um, they have to be, uh, the the housekeeping staff, the nursing staff, all of those dedicated to that COVID positive wing. Um, our break rooms have changed. We've had to learn how to um, make sure that entrances uh, are are dedicated to that COVID positive. I mean, there's just so many changes with COVID that we've had to make. And we we need to, uh, or we have been very successful in it, despite the, um, despite the media that we've recently received, our nursing homes and our long-term care facilities have been very, very successful in um, keeping this pandemic at the absolute lowest rate of, of, um, of mortality and um, deaths and actually very sick residents. We've done a fantastic job as an industry. Um, there, the, when this first started, as everybody remembered, there wasn't any PPE. Everybody had to scrounge and they had to use, um, you know, they had to use the exceptions and the critical levels. We, we just come through it fantastically and have done a great job. Um, so that's basically, that's a, that's a high level cohorting, what we have to do for infection control, um. In, in the long term care facilities, very, very high level from last time.
0: All right, thanks, Pam. Um, so, one of the guidance updates included changes to the verbiage about what it means to be fully vaccinated. Can you tell us about that update?
1: I sure can. And if, if you guys are okay with it, we've developed a document that will be available through Quality Insights as well um, to kind of make it easier for you to find answers and to find links and things so if you don't mind Mitzi I'm going to go ahead and share my screen in order to um, show folks this document uh, and and I'm gonna take my I'm gonna take myself off video because you so maybe you guys be able to see a little bit better what's what's going on plus I had some eye uh, surgery done some old lady cataract surgery done and um I, I may have to get close to the screen and y'all don't need to see all that so <laughs> um so Mitzi was mentioning the changes in some of the verbiage um one of the things one of the main main things that they changed with this last update were can you see my screen Mitzi are you good if I move it are you can you see yes, it I can see that okay fantastic fantastic. Um, some of the main changes were with some of the definitions. One of the big, one of the big changes was here with fully vaccinated. Uh, and they, what they did fully vaccinated when they state fully vaccinated, it still just means fully vaccinated two weeks after your, um, uh, the two dose series or two weeks after a single dose series is still considered um. Fully vaccinated after your second dose of the two-dose series, and then after the first dose of the one-dose series, that is still fully vaccinated. However, what the change has come—if you'll look at the bottom of the screen here—it talks about up-to-date vaccinations. That is the person who's received all recommended boosters. So it's a new—it's a new verbiage, and it just—it just explains what it means. To be fully vaccinated and to be up to date. So I don't want you to um, change your NHSN thought process because when you're documenting an NHSN, you're still considering fully vaccinated as just the primary doses. It does not, as of yet, include booster doses. So when anybody is talking about that, those two different, um, to, to those two different um Descriptions, that's what they mean. And an, another good thing about this is this document is in here, In here, it, ta- it gives you the links to discuss about, to take you to where the CMS and CDC uh, discusses these different va- definitions. I always talk about utilizing the QSO memos. And the, um, and the links within the QSO memos, because we as a nurse, as long-term care have to follow those memos. And the links within those memos takes us to these same places. So please be aware that when you, you are looking for um, rationale as to why you have to follow a certain thing, if it's in the QSO memo and the link is there, Then and it links to the CDC guidance or whatever you're trying to find. That means that we have to follow that. So, that's the that's some of the different um, definitions. Cohorting remains the same, COVID 19 unit remains the same, and then explains the definition of exposure. What when they talk about if someone is exposed. To COVID nineteen, it gives you an actual true definition of what you need to be looking for. Um, another th- another item that they really specify is isolation versus quarantine. Um, when you are quarantined, that means you are physically distanced because you may have be you may be able to transmit COVID nineteen. No, you have potential transmission, and we need to. We need to do transmission-based precautions on you because there's a potential that that person may transmit COVID-19. Now, isolation is the same transmission-based precautions, but it's if they are fully positive. If you have a positive COVID-19 person, that is isolation. So that's the kind of the difference between COVID-19 between quarantine and isolation, and then we can go a little bit deeper into that in a a bit.
0: All right, thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Um, And and so kind of related to what you're talking about here as far as quarantine goes, um, you know, I I understand that another part of that updated guidance uh, focused on quarantine for residents who are asymptomatic. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how it differs from previous guidance for those types Abs- of things?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, and that's another good thing uh, with, this, with this guidance, which by the way, was approved by the West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources. So I know you guys have a lot of Pennsylvania folks. So there may be some differences. So be aware of that. Um, so difference in asymptomatic uh, we talked about isolation versus quarantine, um, but what you need to know are the differences. Prior to prior to all of this, uh, we had a 14-day quarantine for those that were non-vaccinated. Um, those that were vaccinated were not quarantined. Um, so, and that's still kind of the same, except for the 14 couple of differences. So, we're going to look at this uh, this document here. The differences are outlined uh, under quarantine on the left column and isolation on the right. For quarantine, you've got a 10 day quarantine for asymptomatic residents who are not up to date with vaccinations. Notice it says up to date. It does not say fully vaccinated and have had close contact to someone with COVID-19. And then also you have a 10 day quarantine, including residents who are newly admitted and not up to date with their vaccination. Now there's a seven day quarantine option, which is um, residents has a, sorry, my My phone's going off. Um, There's a seven day quarantine option when the resident has a negative viral test done 48 hours before the planned discontinuation of transmission based precautions. So they're still in their 10 day quarantine, but if with with it before 48 hours, if you pull a a viral test on them, then, um, then they can get out in seven days if they have a negative test and they have not developed any symptoms. You'll notice at the bottom of this little block, it says, please see the complete guidelines for other options. There are tons and tons of if this, then that, such as immunocompromised folks or whatever. Um, So we couldn't put all of the different, um, we couldn't put all of the different scenarios within the summary. So we included a guidance to to that so that you could go back in there and look, well, this is a different situation. This is what's going on. So you can go back to the guidance and see. You'll also notice up to date has a link as well. And when I was telling you up there about the definitions of what CMS and CDC considers fully vaccinated and up to date, that link takes you directly to that. It also takes you directly to the close contact uh, definition. So you don't have to go searching for that as well. Now, back over to isolation. So when isolation will end, this is what it's telling you when you're going to take these folks who are in isolation. And remember, that's a positive COVID. They're, they're positive for COVID. When isolation ends for uh, um for those who were asymptomatic throughout their infection, it tells you that they are, unless they're um, uh, severely immunocompromised, um, at least 10 days have passed since their first positive viral test. So you can take them out of isolation at that point in time. Um, Isolation ends for residents who are not mildly to severely immunocompromised when, uh, at least 10 days have passed since their symptoms, and at least 24 hours have passed since they've had a fever without the use of reducing medications. And we had a really interesting question about that, and I'll get to that one after the last and, which is their symptoms. For example, their cough, et cetera, has improved. We had a question about that 24hour no fever thing. and it was, what if they're on Tylenol? Uh, routinely for pain or, or whatever, and their fever is gone, but they're still on that Tylenol. If they had a fever, if they were taking that Tylenol the way that I might, but you can refer to your physicians or your for medical provider, but the way that I interpret it would be is that if they had a fever and they were still on that Tylenol and it still has come down and they're still on that Tylenol or whatever they're on, then that would be considered 24 hours have passed without the use of extra um, fever reducing medications, but that you would refer to your provider for that, for that, um, information. Um, we were talking about asymptomatic. We'll do testing after asymptomatic. So um, that's the COVID unit. I'm sorry if I'm scrolling too fast. You guys will get a copy of this if you're interested in it. So I don't, but I just wanna make sure I'm hitting the question completely. Uh, On this, this portion of the slide talks about quarantine, best practice. And it just gives you a, when you have a resident and you're wondering whether you need to put them in quarantine, and if they're asymptomatic, what do you do, or what's your what's your criteria? Um, they're of course they're not up to date on their vaccinations. They're a newly admitted resident, or they have been out of the facility for more than 24 hours. Uh, if they've had a non- known exposure, you'll want to consider uh, quarantine. If they are not up to date with their vaccinations. But if they're up to date on their vaccinations and if they're moderately uh, to severely immunocompromised, you may want to consider doing a quarantine for them. Um, And that's an option that the CDC has put in for the infection preventionists within your facility and your medical providers to kind of determine for the, the little frail residents who you may want to quarantine if they are severely immunocompromised um so that's what some of the changes with asymptomatic versus uh versus symptomatic you know if they're symptomatic we automatically uh quarantine and we test them and then determine what our next steps are so I hope that answered that
0: it does and um and I don't know if you uh would like to kind of talk a little bit about what some of those exceptions might be or some of the options. I know you mentioned that there are links in the document um, to the CDC where they they talk about the various options regarding quarantine and isolation. Can you give us some examples of that or um, maybe give us a little bit more insight on what why those are so varied? Sure, absolutely. Um, Everybody's
1: everybody who is within the long-term care, of course, have different needs. Um, if some of the residents that you receive are extremely frail, if they are very immunocompromised, you know, if you get your residents that, are, that, are, that have cancer and they're on chemotherapy and they're, you know, they're severely immunocompromised, you need to really look to see what the guidance says, if they're on dialysis, if they're doing all of these and they're very sick and you've got to be careful though, because for example, somebody who's on dialysis, you know, it used to be that if we um, if we were quarantining everybody, if they went out for a meet, if they went out for an appointment or whatever and dialysis folks sometimes go out several days a week, they would be in perpetual quarantine. So you've got to really individualize it. You have to look at the different situations. Um, you have to look at the residents' um, comorbidities. Um, you know, I, I think most people would agree with me when we would talk about those who have really, when COVID has hit them, if they're on hospice, it's um, it's, it's a it's something that we need to really look at and think about. How we want to best protect those residents and these guidance, they have so many, so many things that um, if the resident, uh, if the resident, what if they refuse quarantine? What if the visitors still want to come in and the resident wants them to come in even though they're in isolation, they're positive for COVID? You know, those are the exceptions. Those are the things. And CD and CMS has given us a little bit of wiggle room on how we can work with this these these guidance if let's say let's talk about visitation for a second if you have you know the cms guidance says um visitation's open if they if people want to visit they're to visit even if they're positive for covid Um, but if you have an outbreak within your facility and you can't control it like you've done everything you can do and people are popping up positive every week and all the time and nothing you do is controlling this um, outbreak. As long as you are working with your uh, local health department and also not only willing to stop visitation per their recommendation, but also stop admissions, then there are changes that you can do within the guidelines to pause visitation Let them, let things kind of get controlled and then restart it. And that's within the guidelines itself, but those are things that you have to be able to read. You have to be able to to make sure you're working with your local health department before this happens. And and there's there's just so many caveats and things that we can look at and kind of determine the answer to throughout these guidances. Does
0: that is that an example? Is that good? That is Pam. Thank you. Okay. Um, and, and before we kind of get into any listener questions, uh, before we get to that, can you recommend where facilities can go for more information about the guidelines? And I know that we will provide the document that you're going over now. We can provide that and make that available to everybody. But um, is there somewhere uh, from the CDC or CMS or somewhere like that, that they should go for updates, continued updates?
1: Sure, absolutely. I always, to the members of the Healthcare Association, I tell them to always look at the QSOs. Always click on the links within the QSOs, which are the the memos, the the CMS memos. Um, And the reason I tell them that is because they always take you to the most updated stuff. I don't like to... Uh, download this stuff on my computer. Main reason, they'll change it without even telling you. If you didn't attend, if we didn't attend the um, CMS open door uh, call the day that we done the other podcast, we we wouldn't have, you wouldn't have known that they were making updates on February 2nd. So I always suggest go through the, especially um, QSO. Uh, 38 and 39 and the updated ones those are the ones that have the links to the most recent guidance as of right now um there's links to the healthcare provider guidance that has changed dramatically um and it was in January like January 21st that those changed when folks can come back when they can you know all of that it's it's within the QSOs and I I you know I I really strongly suggest that you work with the QIO. They are so knowledgeable with um, what's going on right now. Um, we did a there was a podcast, and if you didn't attend it, it was the um, it was um, going over one of the most recent visitation memos, and it was with Patty Austin, and she did a absolute fantastic job, and if you haven't watched that, you need to go back and review it, because she really uh, went over a lot of little, you know, a lot of the things that were, that are questionable, and she explained it, and it was so easy to listen to, and so easy to understand, so the QIO, and also um, here in West Virginia, uh, at the Healthcare Association, We work with our members all the time on how to navigate this COVID world. And same thing with Pennsylvania, I'm sure the Pennsylvania um, Healthcare Association is available as well. So those are, and if you want me to, um, Mitzi, I can provide you the links to the QSOs so folks can just directly click at them click
0: for them, to them with Yes, that would be great if you could do that. And then I'll also be sure to include those links when we get everything posted as well.
1: Great.
0: All right. Thank you, Pam, for taking time to provide us with your insight. Um, I wanted to remind everyone, if you want to reach out to Pam directly, you can call or text her at 304-573-6776. And you can also contact her at email at P-M-E-A-D-O-R at W-V-H-C-A dot org. And lastly, I just want to say thank you to all of you that are out there listening or watching. And you can check out our other interviews that we've been doing in this series by visiting our website, which is www.qualityinsights.org forward slash Q-I-N underscore vlogs, and pods, and that's V-L-O-G-S-N-P-O-D-S.